again and welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire, a podcast at the intersection of business, technology and society. My name is Theo Priestley and today's topic is a fairly large one to handle, so I've asked two guests on the show to get their perspectives. Will Griffin is the Chief Ethics Officer at Hypergiant Industries, the industry-leading AI company where he developed and evangelizes top-of-mind ethics, that's T-O-M-E, the company's ethics in AI framework and use case vetting model. And Olivia Gamblin, she is the founder and CEO of Ethical Intelligence, a tech ethics consultancy specializing in the practical application of ethics into emerging technologies. Will, Olivia, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Theo. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Will, um, in your rather expansive bio that you sent across, I noticed something um, which piqued my interest. And because I'm a gamer, I'm going to have to ask. You were uh, part of the original content slate on the Sony PlayStation Network. What what was that all about? Well, so at that time, PlayStation Network was purely a gaming platform. And they wanted to move into content because... The idea was that their Sony Computing Entertainment would have the opportunity to compete against cable, which kind of is what it's turning out to be with apps. So what I did was partnered uh, Sony up with Endemol Entertainment, which you know is a global, which is the largest independent television production company. And then we began to create a slate of original content. And then we also uh, wrote the business plan and did the first deals for apps to go on to the platform. So that was Netflix, Hulu voodoo etc so the idea was to turn it into a distribution hub which it has since turned out to be that's pretty cool olivia you um in your bio you said that you have an msc in philosophy from the uni of edinburgh and your dissertation was on moral responsibility and self-driving cars now that really fascinates me because obviously we're going to be talking about ai but self-driving cars is also one of those examples that is used in the you know do i kill the old grandmother or do i save the the baby on in the pram kind of scenarios. What was your was your dissertation around that, or something completely different? Yeah, so I was dealing actually with a new argument going on in terms of the more responsibility of self driving cars, and so I was actually looking at specifically how um, how predictability affects moral responsibility. So a lot of these self driving car algorithms are built on a predictability um, model. And so I was looking at, does that affect how we view blame versus praise um, in terms of when you're running over your grandmother or running over a baby? So sticking to that point then, you know, ethical AI or, or AI ethics is certainly a very sort of hot topic and there are numerous bodies at work right now to try and create frameworks. Olivia, you know, can you give us some sort of basic foundations and um, fundamentals and yeah, so I usually, whenever I'm talking to someone, I usually start with a quick definition of ethics, which is essentially the study of right versus wrong. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to that, but that gives the ability to actually wrap your mind of what we're actually looking at. And so within AI ethics, we're looking at specific principles that we have determined as good principles to follow um, in terms of emerging technology. And so from there, we're looking at these principles such as uh, privacy, transparency, um, accountability. You're going to hear these a lot, um, how those actually work when we're looking at the, the technology side of what's going on. How does it work in the mechanics of it? Um, so how are we actually putting privacy into action, for example? Um, that's a lot of what we're doing from the tech ethics point of view. Will, your top of mind ethics um, model that Hypergiant 
um, industries um, evangelizes and, and that you've created. What What is that framework? Does that encompass some of the similar themes that uh, Olivia was talking about? Yeah, very similar things. And I, I think the idea for us was we're, we're primarily dealing with computer scientists, engineers, machine learning engineers, natural language processors, people who are on the technical side who don't have uh, the education or the training in philosophy or ethics. And so the idea of ethics can be daunting to a lot of practitioners of AI on the technical side. So what we wanted to do was create a heuristic that, which, you know, which is essentially just a simple way of thinking about ethics that would make it easy for the engineers to understand. So similar, you know, as everybody's familiar with the heuristic of the elevator pitch, everybody's familiar with the idea of back of the envelope calculations as a heuristic. So we created top of mind ethics as a heuristic in a way for people to think about ethics quickly. So you can look at a particular use case or a tech solution and you can vet it ethically in a quick way, in a directional way. Now, once you actually get into the actual development of the use case, then it will require, you know, deeper vetting, you know, from an ethical perspective. But this is a tool that we can put in the hands of the engineers and they have a way of thinking about ethics and actually operationalizing it in their day to day work. And what are some of the examples that you've seen uh, in terms of use cases? So, again, part of your model is use case vetting. Can you elaborate on some practical use cases that you've come across that you've worked with with your clients, for example? You know, obviously we have dozens of use cases going now, but first let me just talk a little bit about the the heuristic and how it works. The first step of it is, uh, and and we, we base it on Immanuel Kant deontology, the first step of it is positive intent or goodwill. Does the use case in and of itself have a positive intent? The second piece of it is uh, categorical imperative. If every engineer in our company, every company in our industry, every industry in the world used AI in this way, what would the world look like? And then the third part is the law of humanity. Are people being used as a means to an end uh, with this use case or are people the prime beneficiaries of the use case? And then depending on the company, we also add in another level of vetting, which is we vetted against the company's public stated values and principles. So a recent example is, you know, we're doing work on a on a large conglomerate, which is the largest supplier of automated people movers to airports around the world. And they supply subway trains, um, metro rails, but anyway, a large, they're the largest uh, designer and provider of automated people movers. And so the, the use case was predictive maintenance, you know, which would allow, which would take all of their maintenance records, all of their uh, schedules, all of their passenger loads, and then use AI to predict when would be the best time to perform maintenance functions. So we internally vet, so we internally vet all the cases. So whether our clients ask for it or not, on our side, before we de- develop a use case, we always vet the potential 
the potential designs and the potential deployments. So we did that internally. And once we did it internally, then we were able to share that with the client and the client appreciated it because it gives them, it helps them think about two things. One, they're reading the same headlines that we're all reading about AI experiments that are going bad. And then the second part is they realize that it actually helps make their AI solution more robust because as policy rules and laws come down the pipe from different jurisdictions, they're already operating in a way that will allow them to conform. And Olivia, um, your uh, ethical intelligence hasn't been around that long, but already you're starting to score up some pretty useful um, use cases and client examples that you have um, worked with. Absolutely. I think... um one of the draws of what we do with ethical intelligence is the fact that we come at these problems as an interdisciplinary team. One of the very important aspects of it all is these are very complicated problems. You have to literally study two lifetimes worth of information in order to fully understand AI and fully understand ethics. And so that's that's not possible. But if you put an ethicist and an AI programmer together that uh, have the ability to Get, go beyond the jargon, go beyond, and I'm going to say it, we all have egos, but go beyond your ego to where you recognize, okay, I don't understand this other field, but I can sit with someone and they can explain it. And then I can come at, come at it with my own expertise and point out things that they're missing because they don't understand my field. You actually end up with much more holistic, robust solutions. I like to make the analogy that we've got the computer science programmers, they are the left brain, they've got the mathematical side, they've got the structure. And then you come in with the ethicists that are a bit, little bit more right brained and can seem a bit crazy and, and out there, but together they make the full brain, together they make the full solution, the full thought process that needs to happen in order to actually come up with the right solutions. And what are some of the clients that you've worked with? And you don't have to use names, but what are some of the use cases that you have worked on? Depends on the kind of use case that we're brought in for. Um, on one hand, we'll come in from a proactive point of view where we're brought in at the very beginning as an organization is being set up. For example, we worked with the Data for Children Collaborative with UNICEF up in, up in Edinburgh, actually. And we were brought in as that organization was being formed as a proactive, all right, we are setting up the ethical charter and framework now. So this organization is starting off on the right foot and can proactively move forward in, in an ethical uh, process, especially since they're dealing with child data, which is highly sensitive. And so in that sense, I view that as a great success because it's not looking at ethics as something that's being put on the sideline. It's, it's putting ethics at the forefront and going, this is important and we're ingraining it into the culture that's here. Um, and then on the flip side, we've worked in a retroactive sense where we've come in uh, midway through a project and a client's gone, all right, um, this is what we're doing. And we realized that we may have some problems down the line or we may have missed some important steps. Um, how can we uh, retroactively fix the, the ethical debt, so to speak, that we may have missed? And how do we move forward with more confidence? Um, and in that case, like uh, I can give the example, we worked with the University of Edinburgh and we came in um, after the project proposal had been pitched and it started to be developed. Um, they were working on a learning analytics system to help predict student mental health disorders. And we actually went in and helped 
and identified for them, look, great endeavor you've got going here, but you actually are fixating on the wrong part of the problem. You need to go and make sure that you can support these students on the other side before you're going around telling them that they have mental health problems. So we were able to bring in that fresh perspective and essentially catch this, this what would have been an ethical scandal before it happened. So in, in, that was also another success because now they've gone back and, and, and they're putting that time and effort into the counseling services. And then we'll return back to the project. So it's, it's a success rather than uh, something that put them very much legally liable for some intense, uh, frightening aspects. Um, so in that, that, that respect, it's, it's both directions. Right. Yeah. No, I like what Olivia said, which is that, you know, about a lot of times what they're doing is actually preventing disasters from happening. Uh, you know, because that's kind of, that's kind of how I see my role on, on part of it. The only difference is like, we don't go out and do ethics and AI kind of as a standalone. Basically we are an AI solution products and solutions provider and you get the ethics along with it because we want to make sure that our solutions are robust and our goal and my background is you know as a i'm an entrepreneur my goal is for projects to go my goal is not to kill projects so my goal is to help the technology side be more creative when they're designing the ai with their solutions help their creative imagination help them foresee potential problems, whether it's bias in the source of the data, whether it's bias in the algorithm, whether it's unintended consequences on people like layoff or layoffs, or whether there's a very narrow focus on efficiency and economic return that you don't think in terms of a broader perspective on the impact on the workplace and morale and the ability to win the war for talent. Uh, and then we also help them think, especially, uh, help them, you know, on the general counsel side, help them think about how do you put technology uh, practitioners in a compliance mindset in an environment where there are no laws and there are no policies written. Uh, because before, uh, at the outset of a project, quite honestly, the general counsel and compliance, they have no role. And a lot of times they get it on the back end of a project after a project's already done and designed. So our goal is to help the technologists think more creatively about things that could go wrong and then think more creatively about ways to modify the use case in order to avoid the bad things that can happen and capture the good things that can happen. Does that change the business outcome of the project itself or, or the original, um, I guess, business case that uh, created the project itself, do you think? Well, no, the business case is the same, right? The, when the, when the, a client comes to us, you know, or we're already in a client and we discover an opportunity, uh, then the business problem is the same. The only question is, how do we solve that problem? I think in, a, in an old world, and, you know, every month we're in a new world because of all the things that are happening so quickly. But when I say the old world, I, I mean, 2019, 2018, there was one piece of software. There is one piece of code that was going to solve this problem. And so that solution is mindset led you to the one best optimal solution. Well, with AI, because there's so many ways to actually tackle a problem, we feel like the ethical reasoning embedded in the process has the potential to make you more creative uh, in the technological solutions that you create. And we, we've actually noticed that on projects. So on projects where 
you know, before, you know, we implemented ethics into the workflow, maybe we came up with three or four ways to attack a problem. But once we implement ethics into the workflow, then we come up with 10 and 12 ways to solve a problem. Uh, and it helps anytime you introduce any type of reasoning into essentially a, a brainstorming or a development process, you're going to increase the output. And we've noticed that happening, you know, at least specifically over the last two quarters. Rolling back slightly uh, onto a point that you made around bias, there's lots of discussion around uh, removing bias. Can we ever remove bias, algorithmic bias, or even people bias? Can we ever remove it completely? Or is it always just a case of actually managing it to a point where the impact of bias is negligible? Well, Libby and I actually talked about this a few weeks ago when, uh, uh, you know, when we were discussing it. Bias is inevitable in terms, that's just part of being human, but it's also inevitable anytime you want to do something useful because you want to have a point of view and you want to be able and you want whatever it is you're working on to head in a direction. I think what we have to worry about is when people head in directions that encroach upon other people's uh, rights and freedoms, and especially people in sensitive and protective categories where there's a power asymmetry. And I think that's the thing that we always want to be aware of, because sometimes you can have a bias where you say, well, in this situation, we want to have, we want to identify more talented women. In this situation, we want to identify uh, more experienced minorities. Well, you're going to have a bias when you implement it, but it fits with your overall societal goals or other objectives. So there's a good reason to do it. What we worry about is when people who are in sensitive categories or there's an information asymmetry and people can't protect themselves. So I'll give you an example. Have you have you guys heard about the practice fusion case? It's the first DOJ prosecution of an AI company. No, no, I've known. Well, anyway, so Practice Fusion is a company, it was a company, the Silicon Valley-based startup. They raised $154 million from some of the biggest names uh, in Silicon Valley. What they did was they were essentially an aggregator. They took all the electronic health records of doctor and doctor practitioner groups that had between five and 50 doctors in the practice groups. So they took all the records, uh, they aggregated those electronic records, and then they provided uh, machine machine put machine learning on top of it. So when they aggregated all the practice groups that were, that there were, were their clients together, there were five million patient records. So what they did is once they got the five million patient records, then they started doing machine learning so that they could look and see. They started matching up health types, ages, demographics. Then they started mapping out each individual's health trajectory, what medications were they on, what happened to their condition, what medications were they ultimately on. And so based on that aggregated data, they started making recommendations back to individual doctors for medicines to prescribe. Now, some doctors actually started prescribing medication off of these recommendations because they believe, well, I only have access to my patient records. They have access to all these aggregated records. So obviously this would be the quote unquote best available data. But it turns out that the company Practice Fusion was actually being paid by Johnson Johnson and other opioid 
prescription pharmaceutical companies to actually recommend opioids in cases more aggressively than medicine would have called for. Well, at any rate, DOJ investigated, prosecuted. They wound up at one point, they were valued at $1.5 billion. They ultimately valuation dropped to $150 million, which incidentally was the amount of the fine that the DOJ fined them. Uh, they were acquired by a company, All Scripts, because they could no longer function as a going concern. Once All Scripts acquired them, then All Scripts was hit with class action lawsuits, and then they have since lost over a billion dollars in valuation. In that case, the bias happened two ways. One is on the patients, because obviously the patients don't realize that their electronic health records are being aggregated, that they don't realize that their records are machine learning is being applied to their their recommendation. And then they don't realize that doctors are making recommendations based on an algorithm. So that obviously it fails almost every ethical test. I mean, here it failed a legal test because there's bribery, but it also failed ethical tests, even if there was a bribery. The second part is people don't necessarily look as, at doctors as a sensitive category or as a place where you can be, you know, you know, as a vulnerable class. But in this case, they are because there's an information asymmetry between practice fusion and everything that they learn from machine intelligence and an individual doctor can from just the data in their own practice group. And so practice fusion use their enormous information advantage uh, to get doctors to do things uh, that they wouldn't or otherwise ordinarily do in the course of care. So the reason why I feel like we shouldn't always focus on the really sensitive categories like the disabled or race or the economically disadvantaged is because you can be what people would consider to be a professional and even a leader in your field. But if you walk into an environment against machine intelligence, you're going to be in a situation where the machine in learning engineers and ag company has so much more information than you, then you're going to be at an unbelievable disadvantage. So I always like to broaden the conception what how bias can get you into trouble, even if you're not dealing with sensitive categories. Olivia, we were talking around something similar, uh, broadly similar anyway, before um, before the podcast, which was bosses using particular tools and uh, artificial intelligence um, software to essentially spy on worker productivity during during lockdown. I mean, th that must be another massive sort of ethical red flag, surely. Yeah, absolutely. As someone that runs a remote-based team, hearing that, okay, people are using software to track their employees, I was like, oh, I can only imagine what my guys would be thinking if we used that. Um, but first and foremost, that just helps feed the fire into this kind of cycle of mistrust that we've managed to kick up with this kind of surveillance type of technology. Um, as we see it, we have the employees that that are essentially trying to do their work, but they they don't trust that their boss believes that they're that they're doing it. And so uh, the boss on the flip hand, on the other hand, doesn't trust their employees to actually do the work that they've been told to do. Um, and so you incorporate technology and it just feel, fuels this boss mistrusting employee and employee feeling uh, abused and not trusted by their boss. And then it, they, they don't follow orders because if 
someone doesn't believe in you, you're not going to follow those orders in that sense or follow the directions. You're going to say, well, why? You don't trust me or believe in me to do it anyway. I'm not going to do it then because uh, I see no worth in doing it, um, which then feeds back into the boss going, well, you're not doing it. And so I'm going to put more restrictions on you and I'm going to track you further. And it just turns into this never ending cycle of mistrust. And this kind of surveillance technology is only adding to it. It was meant to help, but it's been taken to too much of an extreme um, and causing the exact opposite uh, effect than what it was initially intended to do. Do you think that um, these kind of tools, uh, as they collect data, it would uh, suffer the same kind of um, court drama that Will mentioned where these sophisticated tools are, are collecting worker productivity and worker data and actually more information about people's personal lives and then passing that on to other third parties, for example, insurance companies so that corporate insurance can actually you know, reevaluate that particular worker on an individual basis based on their even their home life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there'll be access to that kind of information beyond the employee's control. I mean, <laughs> if I if I need a 15 minute bathroom break, that shouldn't be docked against me. It's my kind of personal flow of the workday. Um, and to have that information follow you around, you shouldn't be judged by how many hours you're working, you should be evaluated by the quality of the production that, that, that you are returning. And I can imagine not only having these kind of lawsuits uh, in that aspect, but also in terms of mental health. I mean, we've seen some of the so- some of, of what of this software is capable of where it will literally ping an employee, you haven't been active on your computer for the past 10 minutes, get back to work, or you're getting a pay deduction, or uh, you'll, your manager will be pinged. Think of what that does mentally to an employee that that only expedites a burnout. And in the long run, I can imagine there being uh, worker strikes and people turning around and going, I can't work under these conditions. Uh, you caused a ner- nervous breakdown in that sense. And then that, that would also learn a uh, lead uh, into another a uh, type of lawsuit in another direction. Both of your companies are obviously doing things um, in a similar vein, but you're very proactive in what you're doing. I see uh, a lot of working groups being created around the world uh, through various bodies uh, in governmental departments and countries are now creating their own AI frameworks and things without cross-border or cross-country collaboration. Do you think that this kind of fragmented view is is really just going to Cause more problems further down the line. Well, I'm on one. I'm on the uh, the uh, working group for AI. I think there is going to be a standardization, and I think you can see that Harvard has the Berkman Center for Internet Society has a principled AI project where they're essentially cataloging all of the major governments, organizations, and corporations' public statements and principles on ethics and AI. The World Economic Forum and Kate Firth Butterfield are doing great work on uh, oversight and governance frameworks for boards and for corporations and for government governance. And I think you're going to see over time the major principles and values congeal. Ultimately, what happens 
inevitably is that there will be more laws. So EU has GDPR, California has the Privacy Act. Just yesterday, the state of Washington implemented a Facial Recognition Act. Um, the laws are ultimately going to define the limits of the technology. But what we always try to stress is um, you don't want to wait for the laws to determine how you're going to operate or what the technology does. What's more important is that you develop a set of company habits and you implement those habits into your workflow. Uh, and that becomes the way that you do business ethically. And you don't wait for laws to determine the rules of the road for you. And I, I feel like that's going to be important. But I think these working groups, the, the you know, IEEE, the World Economic Forum, I think ultimately and then ultimately policy will drive a common set of standards. What will be different is the way that companies go about executing those standards. And I happen to believe, unlike with social media or the Internet, when it was unregulated for so long, I feel like in AI, the companies that are the most, most ethical will be the winners. I just want to pick up on Olivia's point, which was when workplace, there's already a fear in the public consciousness about what's going to happen when AI is fully deployed. Workers are already worried about robots taking their jobs. Society is already worried about um, robots and machines d depriving them of opportunities without any human interaction. And once you get to a situation where employee employers are using technology in a way that makes people not trust uh, AI in the workplace, it's going to kill AI implementations, number one. And then two, it's going to lead a, to a general societal mistrust. I think that societal mistrust is going to lead to extremely restrictive policies in different jurisdictions that will bring some of the technology to a halt. Um, so I am normally based in Brussels. And so I usually have my ear to the ground on the kind of legislation that's coming out in terms of AI ethics. And there's countless amount of working groups um, centered in Brussels as well. And the EU put out uh, just uh, February 2020, um, almost two months ago, a white paper on AI. And that white paper said, we're creating legislation that's going to put those high level guidelines, um, those ethics guidelines on AI into actual uh, legislation, actual regulation um, in the upcoming year or so. So it is coming. Uh, it's absolutely coming. And I completely agree with Will. I think there there will naturally become this um, standardization. I mean, you already see it a bit. Uh, if you look at the principles within these policies, there's a lot in alignment. And it does kind of feel like everyone's going, I don't necessarily know what to do. So I'm going to uh, try and do something. And there's not much coordination there. So I, I do applaud the fact that there are these working groups and that there are uh, policies being put out. But at the same time, there's some frustration. Um, and I notice this a lot working uh, with clients is there's a lot of frustration of it's really great that we have these lists of principles, but what do we do with them? Um, I think there's a huge disconnect right now between all of these working groups that it's just all talk and no action because uh, you tell for example, someone to be transparent and the company is going, great, I really want to be transparent, but how do I, how am I supposed to be transparent? And that's, that's one of the principles where you have to be very careful with it because if you're too transparent, 
you are compromising privacy and security. But if you're not transparent enough, you're compromising uh, principles such as accountability. So you really do need that guidance of, okay, I have the principles. I know what I'm aiming at, but how do I reach that? And then another aspect, building a bit off of what Will was saying, in terms of these are laws, don't wait until the laws have been put out. I think to add even on top of that, the law should be the baseline. That is your bare minimum, I've reached this. But ethics does not stop at the bare minimum. (laughs) Ethics is the above and beyond. For example, one of the technologies being put out right now for to fight, help fight COVID-19, there's a company called Unicast in the States, and they have put out this social score, uh, social distancing scoreboard. Now they follow completely the GDPR and the California CCPA to the T. So they're legally in the right. Ethically, there's a whole lot of problems. You're looking at this and they're, they're, they're got a scoreboard of how well people can socially distance. And yet when you start looking at the scoreboard, it's down to the county and you start looking at the counties and you're like, this does not show social distancing. This shows the economically disadvantaged counties because these are the counties where the people have to still go to work. They don't have the have the the, the benefit, yeah, of being able to work from home. So you're, you're looking at this and you're like, you follow the law, yes, but what you're showing, what the outcome still isn't something that we would approve as ethically good. So I think um, in that fact, if we, I, I like what Will is saying, like, don't wait until the laws and also <laughs> don't use the laws as your high standard. Um, if we have that mindset, then then we're going to be stuck at, at baseline, barely baseline. So. so ethics should drive the strategy above and beyond mm-hmm. the law is what you're saying, really. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to put it, because in our company, what we say is that AI is an apex technology in digital transformation and ethics is an apex strategy in the overall plan that we deliver and we present to clients that that AI will drive the digital transformation and then ethics will drive the strategy of the solution that we develop. That's how we that's how we look at it. And it's to Olivia's point, the law is the baseline, like, Mm -hmm. you know, if I was a pure ethicist, which I'm not, I'm an entrepreneur, obviously, you know, I, I say this all the time, like you can be ethical or a good person at the Salvation Army, but I'm in a business and we're in a business. So we want to be ethical as part because it's part of our economic value creation. That's how we create value for clients uh, by helping them reason through solutions in, in an ethical way. When we look at the impact that we're trying to have on our clients, we're trying to get them to understand that ethics, that any company that only follows the law or who tries to adhere to these amorphous standards and statements of ethics and AI principles, we will beat those companies mm-hmm. because they don't see ethics as a competitive advantage. They, they see it like any other law as a tax to be paid. But we actually view it as a competitive advantage because we think it will make the solutions that we develop for our clients more robust. And we think that the AI solutions that actually can generate trust among the people in the workplace, uh, in society at large, and all the stakeholders has the potential to last the longest. 
Um, and what, that's one thing, at least from our vantage point, we always try to stress to our clients and, you know, our clients, our customers don't pay separate for ethics. It's just part of the, it's part of the solution, but we also want them to see the value in it. And, uh, you know, so far so good because this reminds me of the sustainability issue. Every company in the world at this point, especially fossil fuel companies, because we have a lot of companies in oil and gas, they all have a statement in the principle that says that we want to build a more sustainable earth, a greener future. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the laws say, and now activists in ESG, institutional investors and shareholders, are forcing them to actually quantify how much carbon reduction have you done on a quarterly basis? And that's measured on a quarterly basis. Uh, until we get something similar in AI where you actually have to measure in a, in a quantifiable way the impact that you're having on the world, there's just going to be a lot of wiggle room. So you think ethics and AI will actually be tied to shareholder value at some point then? Oh, no doubt. We're driving it. Like that's, that's one of the things we're driving. So if you saw, um, I don't know if you saw a few months ago, you know, it's a little bit before the EU came out with their standards that Olivia was talking about. The World Economic Forum and Kate Bird Butterfield and her team came out with an oversight toolkit for boards. And so now there's a somewhat, you know, at least from their part, is they're trying to get the boards to implement ethics and AI. And then what we're trying to do is we're trying to push the, you know, the ESG, the environment and social governance investors to put ethics and AI into their requirements. So right now, $33 trillion, well, at least before before the collapse, $33 trillion of institutional investor money was invested along the ESG principles. And what we're actively trying to push to institutional investors is that the ethics and AI should be part of those ESG principles. Once that happens, the law is only a part of the issue that companies now have to be aware of. Once institutional investors say we cannot invest in companies that potentially have taking time bombs of unvetted uh, AI inside of their companies, once that happens, then I feel like that'll be a game changer. And that will be another, just another force factor that will force companies to conform to what I feel like and kind of what Olivia described will be an emerging consensus um, what the standards are. And it won't just be one AI standard. It will be machine learning has its own standard. Robot process automation has its own standard. Predictive maintenance has its own standard. Like each type of use case will have its own set of standards. On a point that you made earlier, which was around digital transformation, data drives AI, obviously, uh, and correct data and and, uh, and data in context will drive AI and machine learning. And you said that, you know, AI becomes an overarching or, or certainly a linchpin to digital transformation strategies going forward. Do you think there's going to be a, a clash in the sense of the way that data is collected and whether it's ethical or, or, or unethical data sources to realize uh, a digital transformation strategy? Is there a clash or is this something that you as a company will, I'm sort of talking to you in, in your framework here, that you can help mitigate? And uh, again, Olivia as well, the, can ethical intelligence help companies sort of uh, guide them around this kind of sort of pitfall? 
Well, that's the whole that's that's the whole game. In fact, that's what almost all the legislation is about, the way the data is acquired. So facial recognition legislation is literally about using cameras in to capture that data. Uh, the California Privacy Act, the GDPR and the EU, that's all about the data, like the way the data is captured, the way the data is stored, the way the data is used, and then what the citizen's right is to access to that data and the citizen's ability to have a veto over whether or not that data can be collected and how that data can be used. So you're hitting on the core issue. That's that's the whole game. So when we go into the use case, it always starts with where did the data come from? What were the rights attached to the data? What rights do you have to use the data? What's your strategy for augmenting the data? Uh, and ultimately, what are the identifying, personally identifying characteristics in the data? Like who can be impacted by the way that we capture, store, and use the data? Now, a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of studies or client work that we do, you know, a lot of it would be what you would consider to be business to business or it would be back, back office stuff. But we still implement the same, uh, data hygiene, the same ethical vetting process to, that data as we would to data that potentially contains sensitive categories, because ultimately what we're trying to do is a keep it top of mind among our practitioners, but then we're also trying to refine the process. So even if we do it on what would be considered to be a generic business to business case where none of those, none of those rights uh, should be in question and that we captured that the data was given to us with consent and the way it was captured was you know, consistent with ethical principles, the way it was stored was fine, the way we intend to use it, um, you know, passes muster, but we still go through the same vetting process as we would on sensitive categories because we just want to get good at it. Because the whole game, almost all the legislation that will be passed, that's being passed now and will be passed, almost all the public awareness is around the issue of how data is captured what rights are associated with it and how that data is used. Yeah, to build off of that, I think this ties nicely back in with what Will was saying beforehand, how having these ethical restrictions is actually a creative boost for teams. And I don't think that this should be phrased as as a clash necessarily. Um, When we're collecting data sets, we have technical restrictions. Um, I think in that case, ethics is ethical restrictions. It's classified the same. You have technical and ethical restrictions. Those are your restrictions. And then there's your starting line. So if you're collecting a data set that's ethically questionable, you should not be collecting that. It's not a clash. It's That's not the best possible solution. And it ties back to uh, Will's comment again about it being more creative solutions where ethics forces teams to actually look beyond their initial uh, solution. It forces them beyond that kind of complacent well, this is the easy way we have the data set and we know we can get it, so we'll use it. It forces, okay, you can't use that data set. You still want to get to probably, hopefully a good a good end, but you need to figure out different means. And you're going to have to be creative because the path of least resistance is not available. And so it forces better innovation in the end. Um, so I really don't think it's, I, th- I really don't think it's a clash. I think it's uh, an innovation booster and it's a natural restriction that should be equally as valuable, uh, as valued as the, the technical restrictions that are there. 
that's actually quite a nice way to round this off uh, an innovation booster because I was actually about to to try and play devil's advocate and say will there ever be a, a situation where there is there are just too much or there is too much ethics and too much restriction and too much regulation for companies to work around but the way that you're p- putting it as a, an innovation booster and making companies think beyond uh, the 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 path of least resistance is actually a, a great way to end this point. Just one more thing then. So looking at the news and looking at uh, obviously things that are happening in our own personal lives, is there anything that you would uh, you want to bring to the fore that's maybe not necessarily uh, around AI ethics, but just something interesting that you've either seen or read in the last couple of weeks at all? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm taking the time to work through that giant stack of books that. <laughs> Uh, I've been saying for probably years now, I'll eventually read. Um, But the one that I've currently got going uh, is it's called Gloom to Bloom by Andrea Bonami Blanche. And um, I'm rereading chapter two, I think for about the third time, (laughs) not because it's a dense chapter, but because it's so rich and it's talking all about um, the benefit to leadership that, uh, well, it's tied back to ethics, but when a leader has ethics and, and integrity, how that works in the long run for them, how it actually helps them become better leaders. Uh, they have stronger teams. Um, they're risk adverse, but in a very, very good, strong way. So I'm uh, deep into chapter two for about the third time, specifically concentrating on the value of ethics to a good leader. And then, uh, well, so now, I mean, I'm reading it really a gang of books now that I'm off some on constructing private governance that I was recommended by Ashley Cassavan at AI now. And then just a book I just picked up yesterday was range. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world by David Epstein, Lawton Cummings, um, referred that book to me. She said, not leave ventures down in Austin. Uh, but it's a great way of thinking because it, uh, it encourages people to use analogical thinking. And it's saying that people who can think that way will have the most effect on technologists who are typically used to thinking in a very linear way. But now, you know, you not only is tech crashing on our lives, but we're also crashing in on their lives because now the society is demanding that they think about the impact of their technology. Uh, and so I feel like it's a good book. And usually when I talk to machine learning engineers and those kind of things, I always try to help them think in terms of analogies, because to Ashley's point, once you can think in terms of analogies and not so linear, it gives us now the opportunity to be more innovative and more creative. Uh, so that's the book that I'm reading now. It reminds me of the quote, um, specialization is for insects. Um, and I'm trying desperately to remember who said that. We could literally bump gums all day long on on AI and ethics. Um, where can people find you to continue this particular conversation, Olivia? Yeah, so we are on LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can find Ethical Intelligence Associates on LinkedIn and then our Twitter handles at ethicalai um, underscore co. Um, we've also got a website you can link us to. And uh, I am very active on LinkedIn. So I'm always open if you want to reach out and have a chat. You can find me at Olivia Gamblin. And I can I can attest to that because that's how I met both of you on LinkedIn. <laughs> True. So you can find me, Will Griffin, Hypergiant at LinkedIn. And then you can learn more about Hypergiant and all the cool work that we're doing at hypergiant.com. 
I want to thank you both for uh, joining me on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss uh, the ethics of AI with you both. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us, Theo. Well, that's it wrapped up for the, this particular episode of We Didn't Start the Fire. You can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe, pass the word, and there is a coffee account if you feel inclined to donate and keep this one going. Thank you very much indeed. See you next time.